Amen. Amen. Colossians 1, I'll read from verse 21. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Amen. Now, you remember from last week that uh, we spent our entire time thinking through what we call that conditional clause in verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. We discovered in verses 21 and 22 that Paul was declaring that those in Colossae, they were formally alienated, formally hostile toward God, and they had been reconciled through the life and the death and the burial and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of their trust in Christ, they're now standing holy and blameless and above reproach before God. And then we heard that looming if, if indeed, that clause. And at first glance, it seemed to communicate that if you did not continue in the faith, then you would obviously lose your salvation. But we learned last week from the words of Christ when he said that my sheep hear my voice and that I, that I call them and that they're in my hand and no one can snatch them out. And the Father who's greater than all, no one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. And we learned from the parable of the sower that you cannot lose your salvation. Rather, a person who does not continue the faith didn't lose their salvation. We would say, the Bible would say, they were never saved. We looked at the rocky soil and the thorny soil where they first seemingly had evidences of salvation but ended up falling away, and the Lord Jesus clearly stated they weren't Christians. The scripture does teach, once saved, always saved, but we must identify what we mean by saved. Now, another way to state this is that we've been examining the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Some like to call it the preservation of the saints. And both statements are correct, because we persevere in the faith because God preserves us in the faith. Our Christian life starts at salvation and it continues until we die and see the Lord face to face. And since he authored our faith or he began our faith, he's promised to finish or perfect the good work that he started and he will help us be faithful till the end. Now we did talk about the fact that, well, what about those who fall away? Uh, many of us, even in this room, may have drifted for a while. We may have gone through a season or longer of sin. And we saw from Hebrews 12 that God does not have spoiled children. That if someone is truly a child of God, God will bring those sons and daughters back to him through discipline and through chastisement. And Jesus reminds us that those who endure to the end are the ones who are truly saved. Now, for part of the sermon, at least the first half of it, you're gonna, since school starts on Monday for a lot of people, you're going to feel like you're, you're in school here, here this morning. Uh, I make no apologies that every so often I just need to pause and be as, as, as instructional as I can because we need to teach the whole counsel of God and sometimes we have to go over some bigger things and we just take a step back and, and be a little more instructional. 
Today we're going to look at a few more passages than we normally look at. So you're going to have to, as the old phone book would say, let your fingers do your walking through the Bible. But nowadays some of you guys use your phones or your tablets or whatever you have to do. Whether you have a pew Bible or your own Bible, I hope you'll follow along and stay with me to the very end as we walk this through. I don't have a whiteboard to write on, but I did put some definitions in the insert in your bulletin. I hope you have a copy of that, and I hope they'll be helpful. And after we work through the definitions, uh, we'll move over to 1 Peter 1 to help apply what we're about to go over. Part of the reason this is so important is that when you came to faith in Christ, you really did not know what happened to you. When the Spirit of God works in the life of a person to convict them of their sin and bring them to faith in Christ, at that moment, they really don't know all of the miraculous things that happen in order to save that person. I'll speak about myself just for a moment. When I was 17 and I was involved in some activities I knew were sinful, and my sister asked me to come to a youth event at the church she was attending. And, and when the person spoke about the gospel and spoke about Christ and spoke about him dying for sin, I was convicted. And when he called for those to repent of their sin and profess their faith in Christ, I absolutely did, and from that moment forward, I was a new creature in Christ. I was a new believer. Now, I wouldn't have been able to explain the next day what happened. I wouldn't have been able to explain that the, that, that the Father called me, the Son saved me, the Spirit applied salvation to me. All I would be able to say is that I was a great sinner, and Jesus is a great Savior, which is enough for us all I knew overnight. I was blind, but now I see. I was dead, and now I'm alive. But as we grow, we, we begin to learn these things as we're instructed in God's Word. When we're part of a ministry of a local church. We grow and mature, and when we, we begin to discover the workings of the Father and the Son and the Spirit that brings a person to faith in Christ, and then you find yourself even more amazed and even more grateful for all that God has done for us, and it should really humble us. The more we have a better understanding of salvation, the greater our understanding will be of our perseverance or our continuance in the faith. So keep up your thinking caps on, make sure the person next to you stays awake, nudge them from time to time, and eventually we'll get to 1 Peter 1, I promise. So to understand the continuance in the faith, I, I want to go over how some have described salvation in three verb tenses. And this is in your, in your insert. This will help us see that faith is an enduring faith. When we come to faith in Christ, we are saved from the penalty of sin. That's present tense. We are being saved from the power of sin. That's a continuous tense. And we will be saved from the presence of sin. Another way to say this in theological terms would be that we are justified, present tense, we are being sanctified, continuous tense, and we will be glorified, future tense. Now, I put the definitions of justification and sanctification in your bulletin just so that you can follow along. Our definition of justified comes from the Westminster Confession of Faith. Justification is an act of God's free grace unto sinners in which he pardons all their sins and accepts and counts them as righteous in his sight, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but only 
for the perfect obedience and full satisfaction of Christ by God imputed to them and received by faith alone. And you could reference Romans 3, 21 through 26 to, to pick that up. Now, obviously, this is a big doctrine. A series of sermons would be great to go over, but I just want to at least introduce you to some of these definitions because uh, they're so important and helpful. But notice that justification is an act outside of ourselves. It's an act of God's free grace where he pardons, forgives, and accepts sinners and counts a sinner righteous. Not by good works, not because they deserve it, but they're accepted on the basis of the perfect obedience of Jesus. And his righteousness is imputed or, or given to them and it's to be received by faith alone. It's important to understand that we're not just pardoned, that we're not just forgiven. If that's all that took place, then we would technically just be neutral. It's more than a pardon. Along with forgiveness, it's receiving all of the righteousness of Christ. Justification is a one-time event where a sinner is counted righteous as he trusts and puts his faith in the substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus. And as I said before, and I'll say this for the rest of our ministry here, that from that point on in your Christian life, the person who is justified is positionally righteous before God. It's a judicial term. He is declared or counted righteous. And because God now looks at that person through the lens or the righteousness of the Lord Jesus, then we know there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are free from the wrath of God because Jesus took on all of the wrath of God for us on the cross. He saved us from the penalty of sin. That's present tense. The second statement, the continuous tense, refers to our sanctification. Justification, a one-time action where God declares us righteous. Sanctification is the idea of continuing. It means to be made holy. It means to be, made, to be consecrated. I've said, I've said many times before that the, the sanctification process simply means that God is making us practically what we are positionally, conforming us into the image of the Lord Jesus. And again, this definition's in your insert as well. Now, if, you're, if you pay attention at all, I probably quote J.I. Packer right now, recently, more than anyone else um, lately, and largely because of a little book he wrote called Concise Theology. And it is exactly what the book title is. He can, he can make a statement about a big theological concept in one sentence that has more in it than I think just about anybody. So I, I make no apologies for quoting him. Um, J.I. Packer states this. Sanctification is an ongoing cooperative process in which believers are required to exert themselves in sustained obedience. God's method of sanctification is neither activism, self-reliant activity, nor apathy, God-reliant passivity, but God-dependent effort. You could live 100 years and not write a sentence like that. <laughs> this is so important as it relates to our continuing faith, making it to the end. Our justification is that singular event that's an entirely a work of God. Sanctification is a process where we cooperate with God. And the way Packer explains it is so helpful. We are required to exert ourselves 
in a sustained obedience. And our sanctification is not self-reliant activity or God-reliant passivity. So we cannot do it on our own, nor we can just say, well, let's just let go and let God. If we let go and let God, then we'll be lazy Christians, uninvolved in the process of sanctification. And if we can do it on our own, then we'll become proud and self-righteous Pharisees. But God-dependent effort means that we're, we're coming to Him for help as we do our part to walk in obedience. Our dependence is demonstrated through constant prayer, coming before the throne of grace to the one who ever pleads and intercedes for us. The very fact that we have commands, that we have imperatives throughout Scripture means we have to exert ourselves to, to a sustained obedience. I mean, be holy as I am holy. Flee youthful lusts. Abstain from sexual immorality. Make every effort. Run the race with endurance. Pray that you not enter into temptation. You're to be involved in the process of growing and maturing and conforming into the image of Christ through the sustained obedience and endurance. In fact, turn with me to Philippians 2 for a minute. Philippians chapter 2. Paul makes this idea of cooperation so clear here in verses 12 and 13. Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I mean, you see that in verse 12. You are to work out your own salvation. Work out is a word that has to do with effort and it has to do with energy. You're to continue in the faith. You are to make it to the end. But notice that you're not doing it alone. There's cooperation between you and God. Verse 13, for it is God. It is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. His good pleasure is, is the fact that he's going to finish the work he started. And he, he will so that you will endure to the end. God lives in you by the power of the Holy Spirit and he is working in your life. And as you work out your salvation, the Spirit convicts you. The Spirit pokes you. The Spirit prods you. The Spirit gives you checks and red flags. You, you, you might be on your phone or on your tablet or, or doing something that may come across your screen as being immoral or impure. And, and hopefully, that, that as you're tempted to click, the Spirit of God is, is saying, no, don't do it. Don't go there. You may have angry outbursts from time to time, and, and you may say things that you wish you hadn't, and the Spirit of God convicts you to go and ask for forgiveness. I hope at least, I hope so anyway. He aids you, He enables you, and, and, and He's your helper. As you work out your own salvation, the Spirit works. I hope you have that experience. Because if you don't, if you can live any sinful way you want, if you can act any sinful way you want, if you can think any sinful way you want, if you can treat other people any sinful way you want, and the Spirit of God 
does not convict you of your sin, then you must examine yourself to see if you're truly a Christian. The Spirit of God living in a person is the major confirmation that that person is even born again. Romans 8, 9, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. It's the Spirit of God that continues to work in the life of the believer, sanctifying them, making them holy, helping them to continue, conforming to the image of Christ, helping you to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. He's working in and through you as you grow and as you mature and as you become more and more like Christ. And in that process, you will give Him the glory for giving you the grace to press on. You did it, but it was by His enabling. And they work hand in hand. We're being saved from the power of sin as we continue to conform more and more into the image of the Lord Jesus. Uh, if you've been a Christian for a while and you've been involved in this cooperating with God as He sanctifies you, then you know exactly what I'm talking about. There should be things in your past that you no longer watch or no longer read or no longer do as you continue to lay aside the old self and put on the new self. And hopefully, hopefully those who love you most and know you best can, can say, yes, they're growing. They're not perfect, but they're growing. I can see that. They're in the process of being saved from the power of sin. And that you're continuing in the faith, steadfast and stable. This is really, as we hear this, is a good time to examine yourself. Because if, if you're not part of this process then you may not be a Christian believer. And if you have any questions or any concerns or any confusion whatsoever, please talk to me, text me, email me, call me, grab me after the service. I would love to sit down with my Bible open and talk. And then that third statement refers to our future glorification when we'll, we will be saved from the presence of sin. And what a joy, what a joy that will be when there is no more sorrow and there is no more grief and there is no more death, and there is no more cancer, and there is no more sin. Of course, when we think of our glorification, we think of being saved from the presence of sin. We know we're talking about death, where we will forever be with the Lord. Paul mentions death in uh, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 55 when he says, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Victory over death and victory over the presence of sin. Through Christ and our final glorification, we can look forward to the genuine joy that the presence of sin will be gone for all eternity. So do you see that salvation is life-changing it's, it's life-altering. As a young Christian, I remember hearing the phrase that so-and-so accepted Christ uh, in order to have fire insurance. Maybe you've heard that phrase before. Fire insurance. They just wanted an escape from hell. No concern about how they live their lives. 
No repentance. No bowing to Jesus Christ as Lord. Just believing that 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 one-time profession means they're accepted by God through through all eternity. Just, Just fire insurance. Escape from hell. With no desire to live godly and no desire to continue on. Jesus does not sell insurance. He saves completely. He saves thoroughly. And he saves eternally. So we're we're saved gloriously from from the penalty of sin. We are being saved from the power of sin. And we will be saved from the presence of sin. This is just a bit of the backstory of our salvation that we learn and grow as we're exposed to God's Word. And, and, and again, we didn't know any of this when we first became Christians. And yet to this day, we continue to learn and continue to marvel as we understand more and more through God's Word, and even through some of the songs that we're singing, all that God has done for us in Christ. And with that by way of introduction, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. (laughs) Peter goes to even greater detail about our salvation. And he gives us a peek behind the curtain of how amazing and how supernatural salvation is. And he explains to us why we can be confident that no one can snatch us from Christ's hand or the Father's hand. Uh, Allow me to read from verse 1. Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So the tested genuous of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, this is obviously a very rich portion of Scripture. We're not going to cover all of it by any means, uh, or, or we're just going to get some of the nuances, but we're focusing our attention on the perseverance of the saints, or the preservation of the saints, or how God keeps us to the end. And I'm only going to pick up one point from this, and it's good there's one point, because otherwise my sermon would be pointless. One point. We preserve to the end. We remain faithful because we are elected or chosen from the beginning. In other words, we'll make it to our eternal home because God chose us 
in eternity past. Now, there's no doubt that he's the one who begins or authors or starts the work of salvation in the lives of individuals. And Peter makes that clear by addressing the letter to God's elect. Then he says multiple things to support that. Now, the elect here he's referring to are all believers. In the regions he mentions, they've been scattered because of the persecution they're under. One of the themes that First Peter is suffering, and these scattered believers are facing difficulty. Peter's instructing them, he's encouraging them, he's helping them gain perspective as they go through life as strangers and exiles will eventually come back to that. And he uses the phrase, who are elect, at least partly because he's refer he referred, had it referred to him over and over and over when he was instructed by the Lord Jesus for the three years as he, that he basically lived and walked with him. All three of those years, Jesus would say things like, you did not choose me, but I chose you. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. My sheep hear my voice. I call them and they follow me. And if you're a genuine believer this morning, it is because God chose you. God called you. He elected you. We're going to see as we walk through this passage, which will take us into next Sunday as well, is the doctrine of election and the doctrine of continuing in the faith or the perseverance of the saints, these two doctrines go hand in hand. Because the one who chose you, the one who elected you, the one who called you, is the one who will keep you. He is the one who will be sure that you make it to the very end. Now, as I said earlier, bear with me. We're going to look at a few more verses of Scripture and, and just hang on to your hats. I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, and there I'll read from verse 3. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Paul writing uh, virtually the same things that Peter's saying, but even uh, in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. I mean, the language is so clear. Verse 4, he chose us in him. He chose us to be in Christ. When? When did he do it? Well, in, in my case, did he choose me the day I heard that youth pastor at that youth event? That when I heard the gospel, is that when he chose me? Well, no. He chose me before the foundation of the world. Before Genesis 1.1. Before he said, let there be light. Be before anything was created, God purposed to have a people to be his very own. And by his mercy, I was included. And during the course of my life, through his sovereign providential plan, he put circumstances and people in my life. He brought his word to me. He enabled me to understand the good news about Christ. And I trusted him to save me. And verse 5 says he predestined us. It means he decided beforehand. He decided before he made the world that he would adopt some into his family. Now, whenever we talk about the mystery of election. And I use the word mystery because it is a mystery. We need to do it with caution. We need to do it with care. 
and we need to do it with humility. Do not be surprised right now if you never heard this before or heard it explained before that, that your mind is ready to explode. These are concepts that, humanly speaking, are, are so complex. Don't worry that you don't fully understand it. There are many, if not every major doctrine about God in the entire scripture, you don't understand any of them. Do you understand the virgin birth? Do you understand the incarnation? That God came to earth in the form of a baby? Do we understand that, that, that God in the flesh had two natures? Do we understand the Trinity? Do we understand omniscience? That he knows everything about everything from eternity past to eternity future. I mean, do we understand omnipotence? We get all hung up over election. And we have to go back to the clear teaching of Scripture and believe it by faith. Because this is exactly what it says. But don't be surprised if at first glance we don't fully grapple or, or understand it. When we discover more and more about the doctrine of divine election, it should create a palpable humility in us. When you become to the place where you begin to see and know about all things that God chose you, not based on your merit, not because you deserved it, not based on anything that you've done, then you will sing, Jesus, thank you with all of your heart and soul. As you go back to 1 Peter 1, Peter's calling these Christians who have suffered persecution, they had to flee from their homes, he's calling them elect exiles, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, some try to refute the doctrine of election by using that word foreknowledge, that God foreknew that when someone heard the gospel that they would believe. God knows everything, so he knows in advance who will respond to the gospel and who will not respond? And at first glance, that seems almost reasonable. However, the word does not mean foreknowledge in that way. It actually means foreordain. It means to determine beforehand. It's a word used by Luke in Acts 2.23 in regards to Christ, where, where Peter says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified, killed by the hands of lawless men. It means definite plan and predetermined foreknowledge. You see, it wasn't that God's foreknowledge allowed him to know this was going to happen. It's that God planned it. God determined it. God foreordained it. So the idea is not that God knew that you would choose him. Rather, it confirms our election that God determined, God purposed, God planned, He foreordained you, if you're a Christian believer, to be elected or to be chosen. If you're a believer this morning, God picked you and determined that you'd be His. Now, doesn't that cause a big pause? Doesn't, doesn't, doesn't that just set you back a little bit? By His perfect sacrifice, We've been set free. Your enemy, that's me. You've made your friend. And in that chorus, once your enemy, now seated at your table, Jesus, thank you. 
That, that thought alone should create such a grateful, humble heart of thanksgiving in all Christians. We need to be reminded that our sin, our depravity, our alienation from Him, our hostility toward God and the separation we have from Him from the moment we're conceived is a condition we'd remain in unless He took the initiative to call us, to choose us, and to elect us. We love because He first loved us. So He pulled us and He plucked us and He lifted us out of the muck and the mire of our sin. We were dead in sin and He made us alive. We were blind. But now we see. And He did it. So He didn't look down the passage of time. He doesn't have a crystal ball. That He looked down the passage of time and, oh, there's that ridiculously foolish teenager, Rick Tarter, at 17 years old. I think this is the day He's going to come. I, I think He is. I hope He is. I, he heard the gospel. Oh, look at that. He made it. I knew He would do it. No, 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 no. According to Ephesians 1.4, before the foundation of the world, before time began, before Rick Tarter did anything good or bad, before I was conceived in my mother's womb, God predetermined I'd be His. And over the course of my life, He prepared me by His sovereign, providential hand, by softening my heart, exposing my sin, giving me bits and pieces of Scripture along the way, determined that I'd hear and respond to the Gospel in, in, in a very large and extended family that have very, very few that have come to Christ. And some of you can say the very same thing this morning. We thank God for that. And on that evening at that youth meeting at Fox Valley Baptist Church, I believed and trusted and put my faith in the atoning death of Christ. And here, 43 years later, He is continuing the work that He started. And if me declaring verses 1 and 2 about God foreordaining your election hasn't convinced you in 1 Peter 1, then you just got to keep reading because not only are we elected according to his foreknowledge, I'm so sorry. Oh. Not only are we elected according to his foreknowledge, as the verse goes on, he causes our salvation. What you see as you walk through the passage, and we'll look at this more carefully next Sunday, is that the doctrine of election and the doctrine of continuing the faith that go hand in hand. In 1 Peter chapter 1, when... Uh, thank you for your patience with your pastor this morning. 1 Peter chapter 1. Not only are we elected... Not only are we foreordained, but Peter goes on to say in verse, in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again. So not only are we elected, not only are we foreordained, but He's the one who causes us to be born again. We're going to go into more detail on that next week, this whole idea of being born again. Um, but he's the one who causes this. He's the one who works. And he's the one who brings us to faith. The doctrine of election and the doctrine of continuing the faith or the perseverance of the faith go hand in hand. The one who chose you. The one who elected you. 
the one who called you, the one who is the one who will keep you to the very end. And as I said earlier, Praise the Lord. These promises that we have about God's eternal election in Christ are precious promises. It's a joy to know that our salvation is secure. It's a joy to know that there's nothing that can take away us from the love of Christ. It's a joy to know that nothing can snatch us from His hand. When you remember that your election is from eternity past, and when you understand that your perseverance is eternity future, and when you understand that you are kept by the eternal, omnipotent, all-powerful God who rules over everyone and everything, then you know that not only will He bring you safely home, you also know that He will help you continue to arrive there. Jesus, the powerful one, Jesus, the eternal one, Jesus, the holy one, Jesus, the perfect one, Jesus is the one who has us in his hands. We are his sheep. We are his possession. We are his children, and we are waiting for his kingdom. And as we close this morning, as we continue the song we started last week about Christ, our only hope in life and death, the truth of one of the stanzas is this. What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone, Christ alone. What is our only confidence? That our souls belong to Him. Who holds our days within His hand? What comes apart from His command? And right here. And what will keep us to the end? The love of Christ in which we stand. Let's pray.